Welcome to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, also streaming live to CDTV and Facebook. So glad you could be here. We have an exciting two hours today. Um, it's going to be part one and part two. We have got uh, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler responding to a recent podcast in which Dr. Paul Offit, MD, um, provides actually what is provable misinformation about aluminum and aluminum study. And so he's going to go through that point by point. We recorded this interview just a little bit ago, and we're going to be playing that for you. But I want to first give out a fair use notice because um, this is a podcast by an, another entity. Um, it is um, called Vax Talk by Vaccines for Choice Group. Um, but because here, I'll just go ahead and read our notice, fair use notice. This recording contains copyrighted material, the use of which has not been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. We are making this material available in our efforts to provide timely criticism and debate on a topic of vital importance to the health and well-being of the public. We believe this constitutes a fair use as provided for in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Law. Um, we are not giving medical or legal advice. We just need really good debate happening. And since nobody will agree to debate, this is the, the method that we are left with. So with that, we're going to begin the interview. Welcome, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler to an Inform Life Radio. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Javier and I are so thrilled that you're here today. And we're going to mostly hand control over to you because you are going to do something for us. You're going to respond to a podcast um, in which Dr. Paul Offit was featured. And um, I'm just going to let you take over from there. Okay, great. So the way that we'll do this very simply is we'll go right to the podcast webpage and um, we're going to listen. And when I have something to comment, I'll simply pause the, uh, the feedback. Okay, before you hit play, you already did. Here we go. Yeah. Pause a moment. I just want to say quickly. It's I want to say very quickly that the the entity Voices for Vaccines that hosts this podcast are made up of individ individuals such as Dorit Reese and Stanley Plotkin and others who are have. Um, big ties with the drug industry, and they're very pro-vaccine. So I encourage people to understand where this is coming from. Okay, go ahead. Well, I visited their website and doing research for this, and Paul Offit is on their board, but I couldn't find any funding information. So <clears throat> that's worth taking a look at. Here we go. Hello. 
Hello and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are fans of not getting flu every year. My name. Okay, I have to stop it right here. So, just getting the flu vaccine doesn't mean you're not going to get flu every year. Period. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm here without Dr. Nathan Boonstra from Blank Children's Hospital because we put this together pretty quickly with our um, one of our favorite guests, Dr. Paul Offit. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Karen. It's my pleasure. It's always great to talk to you. I know that our podcast listeners really enjoy these episodes with you. Let me just start with explaining that we are here because we're talking about a study that was just released today that makes a correlation between aluminum in childhood vaccines and asthma. She actually should have said association, not correlation. That's a technical thing. Now, I I want to give my own setup here very briefly in that we're doing this in the context in which there is ample evidence of Animal studies that have been conducted by which asthma is routinely and reliably induced in the animals via the injection of aluminum hydroxide, the same aluminum type that's in animals. Also part of the backdrop is that the FDA's calculations to show that aluminum in vaccines is safe actually never involved the injection of aluminums into infant mice or ch- uh, young mice. It was oral types of aluminum fed to mice, but it was the wrong kind of aluminum. And so as we go into this, keep in mind that the, the backdrop on the claims of aluminum safety are a presumption that is present in, in Dr. Offit's mind here, that the FDA uh, had the final word in reality IPAC published three studies that questioned the FDA's conclusions about the amount of aluminum in the pediatric schedule for children. So before we dive too deep into that, let's talk a little bit about the role of aluminum in vaccines. So why are we putting this, you know, what we use to wrap up our food when we have leftovers into vaccines? Right, so aluminum salts act as an adjuvant, and what adjuvant means is it allows you to give either fewer doses of a vaccine or lesser quantities of the active ingredient of the vaccine. It enhances the immune response. So we've been using adjuvants like aluminum or aluminum salts in vaccines really since the 1940s. So we have an extensive decades, like roughly 80 years of experience with uh, aluminum salts in vaccines. And we know that they're benign. We know. Okay. Since 1940, the rate of chronic illness, including autoimmune disease and things like persistent asthma, have absolutely skyrocketed. And so the real world data suggests that there may be a correlation over time. Uh, He claims them to be benign. However, as you'll see here shortly, he will describe how aluminum helps, or he just described actually, how aluminum allows us to get away with less antigen per vaccine dose. So it enhances the immune response against an antigen. An antigen is part of a protein or some other substance that your body has to amount an immune reaction to. It learns to mount an immune reaction to. If it's a virus and you want to get rid of the virus, that's what you're supposed to do. But if the protein in your body actually matches the protein in the virus or the bacterium, 
it's absolutely established fact that you can develop autoimmunity against the tissues that express that protein. Watch what he has to say about the utter absence of any mechanism by which aluminum might induce autoimmunity, even though it's the same antigen structurally. Okay, I'll get back to that in a moment. That, that like aluminum, first of all, is the most abundant metal on the Earth's crust. It's a light metal. Um, no, it's actually the third most abundant metal in the Earth's crust. He said on, it's in, and it's bound very tightly to bauxite. Bauxite is aluminum ore, and it wasn't until the late 1800s that we could actually isolate it in large quantities cheaply. And so no part of the tree of life ever evolved in an environment that had high aluminum. Therefore, there are no known biological pathways that use aluminum as a nutrient. So he uses this, it's super abundant, but it's super abundant because we pulled it out of the earth and we, it's cheap and we use it in everything, uh, regardless of its health effects on people. It's, it's uh, in the air we breathe, it's in the water we drink. It's it is not supposed to be in the air that we breathe, and it is not supposed to be in the water that we drink. Go ahead. It's in a number of the foods that we eat. There is no avoiding aluminum any more than there's avoiding the, the heavy metals that exist on the Earth's crust. So if you look in the, in the bloodstream of, of people who haven't received any vaccines, for example, you're going to find aluminum. You're going to find also heavy metals like mercury and thallium and beryllium and cadmium and arsenic because we live on the Earth's crust. There is no avoiding that. Um, when we went through this with mercury back in the um, uh, sort of early 19, early 2000s, late 1990s, um, I had to testify at a committee meeting once where uh, one of the congressmen stood up and he said, you know, when it comes to mercury, I have zero tolerance. Well, if you have zero tolerance for mercury, you've got to move to another planet because on this planet, there's mercury. And if you ever testified in front of committee hearings, congressmen moving to another planet is actually not the worst idea. <laughs> okay, as clever as that little quip is, uh against congressmen moving to another planet. Dr. Offit is a fatalist when it comes to heavy metals and their toxicity. I teach a course, I've developed a course on environmental toxicology because I do believe that people will be healthier if we teach them how to avoid toxins. There's a couple of confounded ideas here that I wanna unwrap that he's not saying, but there must necessarily be so for him to have this position. The first is, no physician anywhere should tell any pregnant woman to avoid swordfish using his logic. Go ahead and eat all of the mercury-containing fish that you want because it, it's on the planet and it's unavoidable. So it's pretty shallow logic. It doesn't really qualify to me as reason or logic. It's illogic, actually. Second, um, if aluminum is present because we put it in some foods and it's present because we use it to deflock deflocate our water supply and it's present in the air which i've never heard him say that before then we should be more concerned about cumulative dose toxicity from all sources than just to say well you're getting it from here so why worry about it from there so it's absolutely reckless and uh, unscientific and illogical in my view to say you don't worry about it this happened also in Pennsylvania, when we found that the amount of lead that was in the, the water in the poorest parts of Pittsburgh had, I think it was 10 or 25, some huge number of times the amount of lead that was present in the Flint water. 
And the Board of Health, the Allegheny Board of Health was consumed over time with making sure that everyone's getting their vaccines, including trying to mandate an HPV vaccine. And there was a person that came out of the Graduate School of Public Health and said, don't worry about the lead in the water because we know that the, these lead pipes feed the poorest parts of town and those houses already have such high lead in the soil and such high lead in the paint that, you know, the, the water's just another source. The cumulative exposure from three, and lead absolutely has a linear relationship with its negative effect on IQ, intelligence, and, and full dose. And so these guys that are saying, these, you know, the, these people that are saying, don't worry about it from source A because it's also in source B. That's a red herring. Oh, man. Yeah, I can think of a few I would like to have moved to another planet. But again, that's not why we're here. Now, this is not the first study that's ever been done on aluminum adjuvants in vaccines. What do we know from previous studies that have been done on aluminum adjuvants um, in vaccines? Right. So the question is, does aluminum that you get in vaccines, because you can make this argument, um, aluminum certainly is in the air that we breathe. It's and it can be absorbed from you know through the lungs. And aluminum is in the the water that we drink to obviously to a, a less to to a, a in a very small extent. And then it's in some things like uh, anti-caking agents and flowers and, and things like that. So it's in it's it's not in typically unprocessed foods, but it is in a number of things that you would typically come in contact with. An adult, an adult human will eat, will ingest about seven to nine. We lost the, uh, the audio from the, uh, <clears throat> that's where you see aluminum toxicities. And when you see those toxicities, they can express themselves as sort of a thinning of the bones and also some bone marrow uh, effects, you know, where it affects the the blood cells that are made in your bone marrow, um, and it can affect your brain, causing an encephalopathy. But, you know, we all, again, we all come in contact with aluminum. So the question is then if you get injected with aluminum, because obviously when you ingest aluminum, when you eat aluminum, you'll you'll take about 1% of that into your bloodstream. Obviously, when you in, inject it, 100% gets into your bloodstream. So, with Okay, so in the past, this issue of how much is actually absorbed by the body or as i pointed out in my peer-reviewed studies how much aluminum is metabolically available that we have to deal with it's actually 0.03 percent from ingested it is not one percent and he's right we have to deal with 100 percent of the aluminum that is injected into uh, our bodies let's continue wouldn't that be much worse but again if you look at people children who get aluminum vaccines you can't tell that they that they've increased their level of aluminum because it's so quickly excreted from the body and because you always have aluminum in your body anyway because um you're always eating aluminum or drinking aluminum so that sort of begs the question before we get into this study itself it begs the question what what would be the mechanism or how would aluminum cause asthma in a person okay before we go on to that I want to actually address this idea that he claimed that don't worry about aluminum that's injected because most of it is excreted within 24 hours. I've studied those. There's actual equations that are derived from studies that were done. There's a pre-study and there's another study. A handful, not very many, uh, adult men were injected with radioactive aluminum hydroxide to see how much comes out in their urine and feces. And yeah, he's right, most of, but most of could be 51%. And the actual function, uh, the actual description of this should be, 
while most of it's removed within 24 hours, there's a huge long tail for the rest of it. Okay. And he alludes to, well, it goes in the bone. Well, the bone is not a safe place for aluminum. So many of the cells that we continuously have to renew in our body, the blood cells, immune cells, right? They start in all the lymphocytes, the whole category, the whole class of lymphocytes, they start in the bone marrow. And if you're intoxicating the bone marrow, you're going to change the physiological uh, processes of the development of this. And also, even the FDA uh, admitted in their uh, study in which they tried to show mathematically the amount of aluminum from vaccines is safe, that aluminum binds to a protein called transferrin. And transferrin has one job. It picks up iron from your diet and sequesters it into the bone so that you can create red blood cells. We don't know what's happening in infants or in the fetus when you in, in, introduce aluminum or children or adults, if you introduce aluminum and it, it competes with dietary iron for the production of red blood cells, it's very important that we produce enough red blood cells to oxygenate and power right, the, um, the brain development immunologic development, all of the normal development that we expect to see in the, in, in, in after, right after birth and yet and, and during early childhood, there's so much brain development that goes on. And our brain consumes like 80 to 90% of the oxygen that we breathe. So hypoxia is not an unexpected result. Transferrin uh, should be available for our uh, dietary iron, but if it's bound up with aluminum that carries it to the bone, then we may be having a problem with hypoxia. Uh, further, he's absolutely incorrect on his claim that you get more aluminum uh, from water and from food and everything made from water. Uh, if you drink it, there's a supplementary file that I want to share with you that shows actually uh, from a peer-reviewed publication that, that we were able to uh, include in that peer-reviewed publication on aluminum that actually shows quite the opposite is true when you correct for what he just talked about. He just talked about how much um, aluminum is actually uh, has, has to be dealt with if it's injected versus ingested. So this is uh, raw intake data from various sources, which are provided here for breast milk, parenteral nutrition, which means you're bypassing the gut, you're actually injecting it through an IV, somebody has to have an IV, uh, infant formula, soy-based formula, and vaccines. And if you look at this chart, it looks like vaccines, you know, there's less aluminum in vaccines than there is in breast milk exposure um, from I'm diet. Gonna, could, could I ask you to please uh, describe what we're seeing for our radio audience who doesn't see the visual? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the there's a diagram that has, it's a histogram, and uh, the, there are five categories, breast milk, parenteral nutrition, infant formula, soy-based formula, and vaccines. And the breast milk has, a, compared to the others, a small amount of aluminum, um, and parenteral nutrition uh, imparts more. And then infant formula, about 40,000 micrograms. Soy-based formula is huge at 120,000 micrograms. But then vaccine comes in less than breast milk. So then if you actually do a very simple adjustment, Okay, the next figure that we're looking at here is the same histogram with the 
sources in the same order, and you adjust for the amount that is absorbed, or what I call metabolically available, the metabolic exposure of vaccines is far, far greater per body weight than any other source. So when you listen to- If I may interject, this really tells us that the body is geared towards getting rid of aluminum and heavy metals as quickly as possible when ingested. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, and there's a couple of times when you inject it, right, you're, you're going, through, you're bypassing the, the gut. So that it doesn't, ex, uh, it actually makes it into the internal, internal body cavity and so on. Now, it, it, where it can do damage, it can do damage to various tissues, it can cause autoimmunity, it can get into the brain, but then it also has to come out and it comes out primarily through, um, through the intestine, all right, and, and, and a lesser amount from the kidneys. Well, this is a toxin. Aluminum is a toxin. Every form of aluminum that's been studied is, is, is a toxin. And so it's going to poison those tissues on the way out as well. And very likely it's going to cause harm uh, at these high doses in the, the cells that are in your gut, uh, the, the, the bacteria that are in your gut that are supposed to provide the healthy flora in your microbiome. And so we might be seeing tissue damage in the intestine as a result of this. And then if you look at the the third diagram in this, and we'll provide the link to this so you can share it with the with everyone. If you look at the accumulative exposure from zero to four and six months from soy-based formula, other formula, breast milk, it's tiny, right? But if you look at vaccines, you can see that it it, it after considering the mass that we have for clearance from the experiments, it's accumulating over this first six months. And, and so because of the large number of doses, so Don, I, I have uh, one question for both of you PhDs. Very seriously, Dr. Paul Offit said aluminum was benign. Can a benign product be used as an adjuvant? Would a benign element ingredient do the job of an adjuvant? Yes or no? Javier, you care to guess first? It's a, it's a no. That's the thing. And again, we have to start dealing with the fact that when we talk about the immune system, there's a very specific way that viruses and bacteria are presented to the immune system. We're dealing with something completely and utterly foreign when we talk about vaccines. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're actually going to get into that very question here with this next claim, which is a ludicrous claim about there's no known mechanism by which aluminum could possibly cause persistent asthma uh, and, I, and I'll address it when he's done. Right. So, so the the um, conjecture in this paper, and and uh, I think the term "study" that you used was very generous because I, I think they really they didn't study their issue. But the 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 conjecture is when you're born, you're born with an allergic bias, if you will. That that so so that, that and you're educated. Your immune system is educated away from that allergic bias by being exposed to a variety of, of, of viruses and bacteria and parasites and fungi in the, in the body to which you make an immune response and then sort of that educates you away from this allergic bias to a non-allergic bias. So they were said another way, the, the T cells, which are a type of cell in your body that can determine this, the, the allergic bias is a Th2 response, which you're then sort of educating yourself away from with the Th1 response. And, and if you look, for example, in, um, in the developing world, 
things like uh, skin allergies and asthma are much less common because very early on in the developing world, you're more likely to be colonized with parasites in your intestine. You're more likely to be colonized with bacteria that produce toxins. And so, and so that's why. And, and there was actually a New England Journal of Medicine uh, op-ed piece, an editorial piece uh, long ago that I'll never forget because the title of that, talking about this, um, this so-called hygiene hypothesis, that the more uh, sanitation, the higher the level of sanitation in the country or hygiene in the home, then the more likely you are to have these kinds of allergic uh, problems. The title of that uh, op-ed piece was called Eat Dirt, Please. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so here we have a peer-reviewed retrospective study with hundreds of thousands of patients in which statistical association was studied by scientists who do vaccine safety science for a living. This is a CDC study. Uh, I don't want to give away too much right now in terms of the methodology, because I have to address that in a moment, but they did robust methodology. I'll just say that. And he is now saying that, well, it's not, you're being generous by calling it a study. Let me give you an op-ed that counters that as if it's an op-ed that somehow the fewer antigens you're exposed to, the more prone you are to allergic allergies or autoimmunity or something. That's not yeah. a study. An op-ed is not a study. And, and he, he loves to cite anecdotes to replace the data from peer-reviewed studies as if they are the same level of scientific evidence. And this, he's using what I call the great sliding scale of scientific evidence. When a doctor wants to convince you that they know the truth, they will cite their personal knowledge, their personal experience. They will cite something that some other doctor said as if their white coat authority alone is sufficient to replace a well-done peer-reviewed study. It's remarkable that in the same breath, he says, you're being generous in calling this a study. Oh, by the way, I can give you an op-ed to counter that. Yeah. Yeah, and that is an excellent point, but I also want to say that he can very much confuses people who are new to the subject because their other real published peer-reviewed adequately done science does show that there is some truth to this theory about us not being exposed to enough antigens that we are, you know, too clean, especially our guts don't aren't populated as they should be. Um, and so that confuses people because they hear this little bit which has an element of truth and they then they buy into everything else that he is saying. And the immune system is extremely complex and modern life is extremely harmful uh, to, you know, uh, a healthy immune system. So, okay, well, go ahead. I, I won't object to that, but I will point out that uh, he mentioned developing countries compared to the countries in the Western world. The Western world countries receive far more aluminum from vaccines okay, then uh, developing countries uh, who, who just have more infrastructure to mandate and to make sure that everyone gets these aluminum containing vaccines. But also um, he is confusing people because he, ref he refuses to share in these discussions the knowledge that aluminum is a Th2 biasing adjuvant. It's known scientifically, it's a Th2 biasing adjuvant. So why is he looking somewhere else for some other explanation for the Th2 bias that he knows that De Stefano et al are saying, uh, and I've said, and other people have said, hey, the people that end up with allergies after immunity, they tend to have Th2 skewed immune system. You want a Th2, Th1 balance, what's causing it? 
Well, we have the causal factor in every vaccine. Every syringe of every vaccine that contains aluminum contains a causal factor for TH2 skew. Does this do that? Does aluminum do that? And I would argue that although that was it was conjectured in this paper, there was no evidence to support that that people. He always does this. He he likes to say in this particular paper, they didn't provide any evidence that aluminum TH2 skew. But there's a huge literature on the actual mechanisms of activity of of, of aluminum. It's it's remarkable. People who say had more or less aluminum had differences in their TH1 versus TH2 response. It was just kind of thrown out there as a possibility, and that's not good enough. No. So I guess the main weakness of this paper that I've been hearing is that it sort of draws a correlation between two things without showing whether or not there's a real relationship between them. Is that fair? Fair. So I think if you if you have something that you think caused something, it would be important to show a biological basis for it. I mean, so for example, um, if you think that, that naturally in being infected with hepatitis B virus um, causes you to have aplastic anemia, meaning to have a complete shutdown of your bone marrow, you should propose, which has been, that, that sort of thing has been published, you, you should propose a mechanism by which that happens. You can't just make it up, you know, so I think there was a cartoon once where you, there was like somebody drawing something on the blackboard with all these formulas and then, you know, there was a line that said, and then something happens. <laughs> that's not good enough. You have to have like a reason for why that's true. Um, and, and, and most importantly, this is the most, my, my criticism of this paper really centers on one thing. If you're going to propose that one thing caused another, and you're looking at two different groups, in this case, group one would be a group that received more aluminum than group two. And you're arguing that that group that received more aluminum in vaccines than group two, that second group, um, have now a higher incidence of asthma because of that. Well, you have to make sure you control for so-called confounding variables. You have to isolate the... Okay, we'll get to this point in a moment. So what this man has done is he's um, acted as though there's no studies whatsoever that show mechanisms of harm from aluminum. There's just no science. Many years ago now, I think it was 2015 or 2016, I published a blog article entitled uh, paging Dr. Offit, your aluminum toxicity reading list is ready. It, all you have to do is go to Google and type in paging Dr. Offit, aluminum, and my last name, and you'll find it. It's at jameslanswilder.com, but you can also go to PubMed. And, you know, when I teach biology at IPAC-EDU, I actually, for one of the assignments from my biology classes, I actually have them go to PubMed and do a search on aluminum toxicity in any kind of cell. And every year, I have 30 to 40 students in the class. Every year, all the students come to me with different studies. There's that much literature on aluminum toxicity and the mechanisms that all of my students can find it. If my first year biology students can find studies at PubMed that are um, that show the mechanisms of action of aluminum toxicity in great detail, so this is called arguing from ignorance, and he's capitalizing, hoping that no one's going to follow up on his claim. No one's actually going to go and use the internet and, you know, see for themselves. And he also failed to say that you should have a control group of uh, completely non-exposed children. Sure, sure. Well, he's also, you know, he's 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 again in, invoking, um, in, invoking 
untruths. He's stating untruths. He's basically lying at this point in time by saying that there's no studies that show that there's any mechanism of action. And so he also doesn't apply the same level of criteria for knowledge claims to his own thought thinking. Um, okay, so you know if you have uh, anemia as a result of hepatitis B uh, infection, fine. There's some publications on that. That's great. If he doesn't understand the mechanism of action of aluminum as an adjuvant, then how? why is he claiming it's an adjuvant? I mean, where's the study that shows the mechanism of action of aluminum as an adjuvant? He doesn't point people to that literature because it also then shows that the, the, the neurotoxic, cytotoxic effects. The effect of that one variable. So the only difference between what, those two groups. What he's saying here, because I interrupted, he's talking now about the DiStefano et al. study, and he's saying when you do these kinds of retrospective studies, you really have to adjust for covariates. So I, I interrupted him, but you have to adjust for covariates. Now, this is a this is really this speaks to the man's character. He's absolutely lying through his teeth at this point in time. Um, this is very unprofessional, but go ahead and listen to what he says. Oops, is the amount of aluminum they received in vaccines. You want to make sure that they're identical into the same one. You're going to prevent virus. In fact, I'm going to back um, it up. Causes you to have aplastic anemia, meaning to have a complete shutdown of your bone marrow. You should propose, which has been, that, that sort of thing has been published. You, you should propose a mechanism by which that happens. You can't just make it up, you know. So I think there was a cartoon once. We, there was like somebody drawing something on the blackboard with all these formulas. And then, you know, there was a line that said, and then something happens. <laughs> that's not good enough. You have to have like a reason for why that's true. Um, and, and, and most importantly, this is the most, my, my criticism of this paper really centers on one thing. If you're going to propose that one thing caused another, and you're looking at two different groups, in this case, group one would be a group that received more aluminum than group two. And you're arguing that that group that received more aluminum in vaccines than group two, that second group, um, have now a higher incidence of asthma because of that. Well, you have to make sure you control for so-called confounding variables. You have to isolate the effect of that one variable so that the only difference between those two groups is the amount of aluminum they received in vaccines. You want to make sure that they're identical in terms of other risk factors, like breastfeeding, which can be protective against asthma, or a family history of asthma. Imagine that, the, the, the and this would be obviously a huge flaw in the study, that the group that received more aluminum also happened to have uh, parents that had a family history or grandparents that had a family history of asthma. You have to control for that to make sure that the breastfeeding was the same on both sides, that the family history was the same, that the exposure to to, uh, to pollutants in the air is the same, that where they live matters because, you you know, if you're living in a highly industrialized region and most of your patients or people in the study who, who had higher levels of aluminum lived in more industrialized regions, that's a confounding factor. So you have to make sure that's that's the same on both groups which they didn't. They didn't do that. They didn't do the one basic thing they needed to do to prove that something was causally associated. Instead, what they did was they sort of said, they said you know, is associated, uh, not necessarily causally associated, but you can't put that kind of study out there. You okay. Then he's going to go into an a ethics missive on why we should censor science in a moment, but let's deal with this. Uh, he's lying. And the reason why he's lying, and I encourage everyone uh, to go read the study itself and see for yourself when you go there. I will bring this up. It's available on PubMed. What, what I'm sharing right now is on the screen. Association between aluminum exposure from vaccines before age 24 months and persistent asthma at age 24 and 59 months. If you go to PubMed, click on the Elsevier publication. 
you will then be able to scroll down and or go to the PDF and you will say right here in the methods, adjusted hazard ratios and 95% confidence intervals per one milligram increase in aluminum exposure were calculated, adjusted for birth month, year, sex, race, ethnicity, VSD site, prematurity, medical complexity, food allergy, severe bronchiolitis, and healthcare utilization. Okay, so some of the things that he mentioned are not adjusted for. He did a sub, they did a subgroup analysis on breastfeeding. So they gave consideration to these others. And so he's misrepresenting the study. Now, this is ironic because he said that this criticism of his is the most important criticism of this. Well, I'm going to tell you that my number one criticism of Paul Offit and the people that do retrospective studies and won't do a randomized prospective clinical trial on vaccines out of the assumption that they're so safe, everyone deserves to have a vaccine. They won't study the, the assumption is that some of the things that he said, hey, it would be, you know, it, I can imagine that all of the people that had high dose of aluminum also had a family history of, of persistent asthma. And therefore this study is fatally flawed because I can imagine a confounder. And I'm gonna stay on this point for a while because it's so important. The white paper from sponsored by the CDC, co-authored by Stanley Plotkin, endorsed by Paul Offit, is to go ahead and let's adjust for confounders. The way I was taught in my graduate studies classes and statistics, you don't adjust for confounders unless you know that they're confounders. Because what you end up doing is you can end up contain, including too many confounders that are not real, and then you're chewing away at the variance in the data in a way that um, leaves nothing left to be explained for the vaccines, not because it's causally uh, exonerated, and that's what they're hoping for, but because you have what's called model overfit. When we're doing this regression type analysis like they did in this study, it's a Cox uh, uh, hazard regression. You do any kind of regression analysis, you're always at risk of overfitting your model with too many variables. I wanna talk about this study for a moment because for, well, since 2015, I have been saying that what we need to do is, yes, burn that um, Could you quickly explain to the audience what a confounder is as opposed to something that increases your risk, something sure. they exclude out? Okay, thank sure. you. Sure. So, so let's say that you did a study of the relationship between temperature of, the, of, the, of a town and the amount of ice cream sales. In, uh, and you, you study 50 towns in the state of New York, all right? So you look at the number of ice cream, people going to the ice cream stand and buying ice cream cones. Well, some towns are wealthier than others, and some states are wealthier than others, right? And so you might be able to, ha you might have a little bit more, uh, you know, um, ex uh, expendable income. So you can see that it's it's not necessarily a confounder, and this is goes to the criticism. A confounder is one that actually, when you do the study, you you have you have to take it in consideration because it could explain the differences between the two groups. So, right, so what I just described to you would, would be a covariate. It should be included in the model because it better explains the data in addition to the temperature. Temperature is a known cause and factor there. But let's say that you have a, uh, you're, you're a farmer, you're doing farm agricultural research, and, and, and you put um, fertilizer in a plot 
in one plot, and then you put no fertilizer in the other plot as your experiment. Well, if you accidentally put your fertilized plot on this side of the river, and it has a rich soil bed, lots of organic matter, and you put the non-fertilizer soil uh, plot on the side of the river that has rocky soil, you, the outcome of the yield or whatever your outcome measuring in your agricultural experiment will be affected so strongly by the soil quality that you won't yeah. be able to, you won't be, and this is important, you won't be able to detect yeah. uh, the effect of the fertilizer. Even if you know that it's fertilizer, if you're trying to estimate the, the measured benefit from fertilizer, you won't be able to tease it apart because it's confounded. The two signals are going in the same direction. So what you want to do is you want to put half of your plants you know, on the fertile soil and half your plants uh, on the on the rocky soil from both groups. And then you can do a better experiment that way. And and when it comes to, you know, vaccine studies, if you um, adjust for, say, premature birth, the wrong direction, maybe being premature predisposes you to being more susceptible to harm from aluminum, which we know it does because of kidney filtration rates. So, you know, I just wanted to make sure the audience understood that term that you're using. So it's even, um, even, even worse than that. So, so, right. So Paul Offit actually wrote a book where he made up from, from his own mind, I suppose, not with any science that aluminum must be a nutrient. He said aluminum must be a nutrient because premature babies have more aluminum per body weight than full-term babies. And therefore, we just might not understand all the physiology of gestation in humans, and aluminum must be a nutrient that we don't understand. I mean, the man has a mental block, I think, when it comes to being able to say that aluminum is, is a problem. Um, and, and Jack, so, we've got about 10 minutes. Just give yeah. me a time check. Okay. Okay. So... When he, when he misrepresents from this study, and his most important point is that they didn't adjust for, for these uh, potential covariates, that's wrong. But what I was saying was, you shouldn't adjust for covariates that are, you shouldn't adjust for confounders that are actually co-predictors. It's not a confounder unless it actually is a confounder, as I just described. And so what happens was uh, you end up losing the signal of vaccination, uh, expo vaccine exposure, um, but you don't know that you've lost it in many cases because you don't study what's called the interaction term. And a good way to bury the effect of something like a drug, an adverse event of a drug, is to look at a bunch of covariates among your patients and then say, oh, no, 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 it was age, right? Or duration of hospital stay or some other variable that you throw in the model, not the drug. The drug didn't cause the myocarditis. The drug didn't cause the heart attacks or whatever. And, and then do it and then just look at that because you've entered these variables into the model, but never look at the interaction. That's a formal step in this modeling. Well, guess what? De Stefano et al. actually surprised me. They, they agree with me in two and three, four, five ways. I can say that I've been calling for this kind of study since 2015. And yes. they did the exact kind of study that I think that they should do, where they, they looked at the interactions, they, they looked at the ex total exposure. And guess what, guys? I realized it in rereading that, that, that study for this podcast. They actually looked at the incidence of office visits, the same one that I said that should be done in my paper mm -hmm. that uh -huh. was retracted. And so they're looking at office visits that are not related to the well-child visits and their outcome. And then further, let's go listen to what he has to say. Okay. Uh, since he can't find a mechanism of action, I do yeah. want to get this point in. 
Before you start that, um, Jack, I just want to say that a a study design we've talked about for years, you and I and and others, is simply looking at families, at siblings, the older kids vaccinated with certain health issues and the younger kids not vaccinated. So all of those confounders, I mean, they grow up in the same house, same location, same food, same parents, everything the same. And that would be your ideal study. And it's sad to say that there's no shortage of families like this that could be enrolled in such a study. I'm glad you brought that up because IPAC is actually gearing up to do that very study. So ipaknowledge.org can be a monthly donor. Okay, let's listen to what he has to say. You can't. It's not. I think that where the CDC, I guess, can fall to criticism here, they uh, live under the mantra of transparency. They want to be transparent. They don't want to ever be perceived as hiding something. And so maybe they feared that this so quote unquote association, which was not in any sense made because the right kind of uh, controls weren't uh, weren't uh, um, weren't weren't put in these studies. Um, that they would be hiding something. But you know, you're allowed to hide bad data, really. You're allowed to not be transparent about data that in no way informs the public about whether one thing is associated with another. And I think they, they, you know, they're, they're putting out now this, this, uh, their talking points. And the talking points are that this shouldn't change the way that you, um, you know, that you vaccinate your children, that we, but, but, you know, but they've scared people by putting this out there. And, and, and worse, I mean, I think a parent, say, of a child who has asthma may say, you know, I'm not going to vaccinate my next child or my younger child because of that. And in fact, people who have asthma are at higher risk of pneumonia. So therefore benefit from vaccines like pneumococcal vaccine or influenza vaccine or COVID vaccines. I mean, the kind of, you know, viruses or bacteria that can cause pneumonia. So, so, it, so you've done more harm than good. You, you've, you've basically violated your ethos, which is first do no harm. And it's, this to me is thimerosal redux. This is this what we went through this in the late 1990s. And now we're going through it again. It appears like this lesson hasn't been learned, which is the, the, the concern that, that mercury or ethyl mercury, which is a uh, preservative that was in vaccines, was causing harm when there was no evidence that it was. And all that did was scare people and, and did nothing good came of that whole affair other than it created certain anti-vaccine groups. Amazing. So I thought that what we were trying to do here was science. Right. So the presumed safety, right? He's taking the null hypothesis of no causal link between aluminum and persistent asthma. Let's talk about persistent asthma in a minute for a second. Persistent asthma is a more severe type of asthma. This is why they studied it. And the study actually found that there was something like a 26% risk increase per thousand milligrams of aluminum injected if you already have eczema. For years, parents have been saying, my child had eczema. It's a precondition that that, that should be used as a uh, contraindication for further vaccination. Before the mercury scandal, uh, there were doctors that would say, I will never vaccinate a child under five years old. I will never vaccinate a child that has eczema because bad things happen. And so there was some knowledge base there. It wasn't all anecdote, and it seemed to be something that many doctors independently uh, determined. And... For him then to compare aluminum versus mercury as if mercury was never a problem, right? I would just point people to the Burbacker at all studying Robert F. Kennedy's book uh, on thimerosal, Let the Science Speak, because his type misinterpret the Burbacker at all monkey study on, on thimerosal. The type of alum, the type of mercury that comes from vaccines persists in persisted in the brains of the monkey longer than 
the organic type of mercury that is found in, in methylmercury. And also, as we just said, just because ethylmercury might be made to look safer than methylmercury, methylmercury is horrible, right? So it doesn't mean that it's, you know, it, it doesn't mean that in some way it, ethylmercury is safe just because it is made to look through these machinations less dangerous. Less dangerous is not safe. And so here we have so much aluminum packed into our schedule that children under, by my estimations, these are peer reviewed, are in aluminum toxicity 100% of their days of life in the first 12 years of life, or 12 months of life, sorry. They're beyond any reasonable estimate of a pediatric dose limit. And uh, all he can do is arm wave and say, this is mercury all over again. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the mercury, the ethyl mercury concerns and also the autism concerns that slightly preceded that are sort of a lot of things that many of us are looking at right now. And, you, you know, I saw a question being asked today, would it be wise to just not bring up this paper because then it'll call attention to it? But I feel like there are lessons that we learned early on. So, you know, you're obviously on camp, like let's talk about the flaws in this study from the outset. You know, what would you say to someone who says, I don't know, why don't we just like, just don't talk about it and people won't notice? Because people do notice. And and if you're, if you're not, Talking about it looks like you're hiding something. I think you get out in front of it. You explain what what the incredible weaknesses of this paper. I mean, this is like you know the Andrew Wakefield's quote unquote study. Okay, look at this. All right, in another setting, right? Paul, this week, Paul Offit assured the public that you know it's okay. A different podcast. It's okay to look at VARES for a signal, but that's all it is. It's a hypothesis generation. Because then what you have to do is you have to go to the VSD. And using the VSD, you do a retrospective study, and then you can measure association. And if you measure association, then you know causality. Now, go back to any elementary statistics textbook. Am I right, Javier? Association does not test causality. So he's sending the entire scientific medical community and the public down a rabbit hole go find a chickpea tree that's what they say in india because there's no such thing as a chickpea tree you know <laughs> go so to 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 looking at association as if it's a gold standard test of causality when we know that it falls short of causality and this is the mo the mo is to make the make the science of vaccine safety 100 reliant on association pick the studies that you want if they don't find a problem cherry pick them and then go to a study like this one that shows an association and say oh doesn't mean anything because it's just an association study they want to have their cake and eat it too it's duplicitous and it is highly unethical to represent science this way I'm in this, yes, to protect the kids from harm. I'm in this also to recover science from these people. They've destroyed public health uh, reputation. I think that's why this paper exists. And, you know, with, with that, we are just about out of time. We've got about one more minute. So, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, I'm going to ask you to kind of give us a, a minute or two summation um, of, of what we witnessed and give us some positive thoughts of what we can do moving forward. Well, uh, something else, go, go to the Vax Talk and listen to the rest of the podcast because you'll hear him say that, you know what, you, 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 a couple of crazy claims. Um, uh, you can't replace aluminum as an adjuvant. 
in vaccines because the companies would have to reformulate the vaccines and they'd have to start from square one. It would cost them billions of dollars. That's called a fait accompli. That's, that's, we cornered the market. We now have mandated uh, vaccines in many states. It's mandated consumption. We've got the cat in the bag. And so it's, they're toxic. So what? What are you going to do about it? You're never going to do anything about it because, well, guess what? There are some studies uh, that are underway at the FDA that Dr. Offit may or may not know about where they're looking at alternative adjuvants, looking at the effect on TH2 skew and, and looking at the dose effect and that those data exist, but the FDA never studied aluminum the same way. The way you do it is you inject aluminum into mice that are young and then you look how the mice develop. So potassium sulfate, I think is one, you know, our body uses potassium as a nutrient. It's one that's been proposed. It is absolutely plausible. He also says, what, there, 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 are, now, there are now four major manufacturers of vaccines. The other ones have all left. So what are you going to do? We can't do anything about it. these guys. These big guys will never do it. But these big guys haven't met the public of the United States of America. We have a tidal wave coming. The tidal wave are questions for your politicians. I just wrote on my substack on popular rationalism. Every politician in the United States, if they say, I want you to vote for me, ask them one question. Does your party take money from the pharmaceutical companies? And do you take money from your party? Because if you do, you don't have my vote. That's a litmus test. You don't even get out of the starting gate. We need to disempower the pharmaceutical companies in politics. Right on. Amen. We really do. We're going to wrap this up here. We're going to take a break and come back um, in a few minutes. And we're going to talk about, again, with Dr. James Lansweiler with IPAC-EDU. So thank you so much for all of this. We will be right back. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it healthcare, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website, informedchoice.com. 
informchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informchoicewa.org today. We need a revolution. There's only one solution. Welcome back to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHD TV. So glad you could be here. We're going to play the second part of um, that sort of virtual debate. It is aluminum adjuvants. James, Dr. James Lyons Weiler responding to misinformation in the Voices for Vaccines podcast um, called Vax Talk. This is part two. Um, I wanted to state that we did discover that Voices for Vaccines is um, under the IRS as Task Force for Global Health. And they have a $45 million annual budget. And one of their major donors is a, a company called Global Health Solutions. And they have about a billion dollar annual revenue. So we're talking about big money. And the reason why we are doing this in this format is because real debate is not happening. Um, no invitation to publicly debate in a civil way are ever accepted. We offer, they refuse. So we consider this to be fair use. Here's the fair use notice. This recording contains copyrighted material, the use of which has not been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. We are making this material available in our efforts to provide timely criticism and debate on a topic of vital importance to the health and well-being of the public. We believe this constitutes a fair use as provided for in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Law. And with that, enjoy part two. Okay. Well, thank you, Bernadette. This is part two. Thank you. Uh, we're going to continue this. There's about 13 minutes of uh, the um, podcast left. We're going to take our time here, and uh, we'll see what Maury has to say. 12 children, eight of whom had autism, all within presumably a month of getting an MMR uh, vaccine. And that was supposed to be some sort of proof. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it's, it, it was that, that's. That's a misrepresentation of Dr. Wakefield's study completely. First of all, it was a pilot study. It said right on a pilot study, the authors actually said, we don't consider this proof whatsoever. More, more science is needed, more studies is needed. By the way, all they ever said was, it looks like these, uh, kids with autism may have a vaccine-induced GI disorder, which has now been established. Exactly. It was a case series study looking at children, and they spelled out, we did not find an association, you know, between the symptoms herein um, and receipt of vaccine, and they called for more studies. So, yeah, the, the misrepresentation for 20 years on that study. Is and, just yeah, insane. and anybody that's going to anybody that's going to rely on that misrepresentation or listen to just Paul off and take his word for it on the Andrew Wakefield situation, that's intellectually lazy. You can do better. You saw what mm -hmm. happened with COVID. You really have to go read Mary Holland's treatment of this. We'll put a link on this webpage here so that you can go read the official, true, full story. Uh, Andy Wakefield would have been exonerated. He just ran out of legal funds. One of his co-authors, who was also under attack, had enough money, kept stayed in the fight, and got his license and his reputation back. And so uh, the problem for him was squashed. Here we go. 
study was no, or that paper was no better than having eight children who ate peanut butter sandwiches that within a month of that developed autism. And, you know, you have to, you have to do control groups. You have to, and that. Was there a group of patients that came out and said, hey, I fed my children, my child, a peanut butter sandwich and they developed autism right afterwards? No, he's dismissing the actual discovery history, which is really important. He would make a horrible detective. He would never be able to solve a whodunit in putting the, right? And you know about whodunits, Bernadette, with your book series, yeah. right? You know, you have to actually pay attention to the provenance of the evidence and who said what and the timing of the evidence. And nobody ever, there wasn't dozens of patients that no. came to Dr. Whitfield and said, you know, my kid has autism. It happened right after peanut butter sandwich. And I think, I'm not sure, but when they we kept vaccinating them and then they got this really bad GI issue, you know, we kept feeding them peanut butter sandwiches. and They got a really bad, that didn't happen. This no. is the same MO of just making up a hypothetical confounder and saying that it disproves an entire study. Right. And again, it was a case series study. It was not a what um, a placebo controlled randomized trial. It right. was examining a group of kids after their mothers reported these symptoms after in a certain situation and they were just examining it. It was, you know, he's trying to make it into something it wasn't even putting itself out to be. That's right. And part of part of Dr. Wakefield's reputation was damaged because he actually compensated children. Uh, who donated blood to the uh, uh, with parent parental informed consent to the study to see if there were any bloodborne markers or of risk or something? But now with COVID, you just saw everything from lap dances to lotteries to free beer to free pizza, free hot dog, free hamburger. If you get your vaccine, which is experimental, by the way. So if you did take those deals, you were duped into by by an undue enticement to enroll in a, in a clinical trial, the very accusation that they made against Dr. Wakefield, which it wasn't. He just said, hey, for your trouble, here you go. Here's some money. He gave some money. He yeah. didn't entice them. All right, here we go. I was done eventually in, you know, in 18 different studies on seven different countries on three different continents, showing you were no more likely to get autism if you received the MMR vaccine than if you didn't. But you have to make sure that those two groups were the same that the people who got MMR vaccine were the same as people who didn't get it in terms of healthcare seeking behavior, in terms of medical background, in terms of socioeconomic background. So you can isolate the effect of that one variable. That's the way you do those studies and those studies were done. Here, I, I suspect what might happen is there may be then actual real studies that are done looking at this that will, will refute it. But you know, as the, the old Jonathan Swift line is, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after. And that may be what happens here. But I think at the very least we can try and reassure parents that this was a paper that should never be published because it offers nothing to our understanding of vaccines. That's a remarkable claim. And this is the exact study that he says VSD data can provide, which is why we should never pay attention to studies that are done on VAERS. Even though this, the VAERS reports exploded and there were more reports to VAERS uh, in the first three months of the COVID-19 vaccine program than in all years past from all other vaccines. Don't pay attention to that. That's just VAERS. You can, you, you, if you put the Incredible Hulk, your, your child turned into Incredible Hulk, he says, that's true. That's, that's going to show up. The other thing he likes to say about the autism thing, he didn't say it this time, but earlier this week he did. He said there are 18 studies that show that vaccines don't, MMR vaccine don't, don't is not is not associated. It doesn't cause autism. And, and see, I can't even use his language. 
I'm trained to say that the, you know, there are 18 studies that show that the MMR, MM, that found that the MMR vaccine is not associated with autism. Okay. He says does not cause. That's a, that's a knowledge claim that goes beyond the association study context. You can't infer causality from association again, but of those 18 studies, I'm, I'm probably the only scientist on the planet that I, that, that has read in detail each one of those 18 studies. And I analyzed their study designs as closely, well, closer than he analyzed the DiStefano et al. study here, obviously. Almost every last one of them is underpowered, which means it's too small to find an association above 1.1, even if it did exist. All right. Second, there is model overfit. We talked about this in part one, where in one in the largest study, one of the larger studies, they adjusted for mother's age and mother's income, which are correlated to each other. That's called collinearity. They adjusted for the gestational age of the uh, baby and the uh, birth weight, also collinear. Oh, by the way, mother's income and birth weight is probably uh, functionally correlated. And so what you're doing is you're getting this, you're, you're, you're taking another bite out of the variance, another bite out of the variance with these alleged confounders. You know, this is the wrong place to discover confounders. If you're going to do a study and say, all right, I'm going to adjust for this, then you have to say, here's the model with the potential confounder, here's the model without it. it there are objective measures like the F statistic and the variance inflation factor, the VIF, something that nobody that I'm talking to right now probably understands. That's fine. But there are objective ways of doing this. And then you also have to look at the interaction terms. So here's what we are going to do. We're going to say to Paul Offit on his 18 studies from all different continents around the world, all funded by the CDC, by the way, he forgot to mention, they might have been done on different continents, but they were all funded by the CDC. We're going to say, go to the ipaknowledge.org website and find the report. Because three people independently found that one of those, the largest study that he claimed was the most powered ever study, was fraudulent. Mark Blaxel, Brian Hooker, and myself independently, working independent from each other, I didn't know that they had done this, showed that there must have been data manipulation on the part of uh, one of the scientists to move a whole group of patients from one group to another, from the vaccinated to the unvaccinated, or vice versa, I can't remember which. But it's the only way that you can explain that result. And so, yeah, and the vac vaccine autism study has nothing to do with aluminum, except for aluminum probably is another toxin that can cause and contribute to the risk of autism. Go ahead, Bernadette. Well, and Jack, remember when a few years ago we reviewed the IOM Institute of Medicine report that looked at all of the studies? They eliminated all but four for being too weak and poorly designed and underpowered to even speak to it. Um, I think two of the remaining were actually the same study. There's the data looked at a different way, and they were very, right. very small. And then the, the largest one not only um, seemed to have um, data manipulation going on, but the lead author had absconded with a million or two of CDC money, and the IOM said that they could not trust the validity of the study because of this fraud that had taken place with the lead that's author. Right. That, that's right. James Grunvig wrote a book, The Master Manipulator, about this lead author. And thank you for reminding me that Paul Offit actually is, continues to cite 18 studies when the IOM themselves rejected all but four of the studies. And then I went in and I looked at all the studies. Among those four, uh, the IOM, one of them was woefully, woefully underpowered. 
and they accepted it anyway, which I couldn't understand. And so, yeah, we have a, a dumpster fire of a collection of studies that allegedly, you know, didn't find association. That's fine. But number one, they were too small and they were too messy and they couldn't have done it. Number two, um, it's just MMR. Why we're talking about, there's no aluminum in MMR. Why is he bringing this up, right? Not all vaccines have been studied even for association. So we're not even out of the starting gate on the questions of vaccines and autism. And then don't forget uh, uh, David Thompson at CDC. That's right, William Thompson. William, sorry, Uh, William Thompson. William Thompson, he came right out and he said to Brian Hooker, and we have the transcript and the the video, we have the uh, recording, sorry, the audio, uh, and a letter from his, a whistleblower letter <laughs> through lawyers that said that he and his colleagues manipulated a study, the Stefano et al. study from 2004. Then one of the, the senior author on this study is Frank Stefano. Makes you wonder why. Is Stefano about to retire and he wants to make good, you know, with his priest or something before he before he goes off into the other world? Or so? I don't know. It's really weird. But Frank Stefano and Colleen Boyle pressured William Thompson to uh, change the study design over and over and over again to try to make the association between MMR vaccination or on-time MMR and late uh, MMR vaccination exposure and autism go away. And he couldn't do it until Colleen Boyle got the grand idea to reduce the sample size by removing the patients that didn't have valid Georgia birth certificates, which dropped the sample size down below the point where the study could be significant. And he expressed some concerns and he went over, I broke the chain of command, went up to Julie Gerberding and said, I have to tell the IOM about this. Uh, he was put on administrative leave specifically because of mental il- illness that was alleged by his boss. This is a hostile workplace, if you ask me. Um, and uh, while he was on a leave, um, administrative leave, Frank Stefano took the fraudulent results to the IOM. No. And, you know, if, if people are new to this, especially like my radio listeners, uh, if they want to learn about this, they can go see the documentary film Vaxxed from cover up to catastrophe. Uh, fabulous film. And and I would like also, to give if you I, my... if, I can, if I can inject, you can also find this chronicled in a chapter in my book, Cures versus Profits, yes. in which I interviewed Brian Hooker. And this was before Vaxxed was made. In fact, Brian Hooker, Dr. Hooker told me about the documentary Vaxxed after my interview. So I could have, I was neck and neck with those guys anyway. <laughs> good, good for you. And, and I would like to quickly give you my theory about why does Stefano and the other CDC scientists have now admitted what we've, what the science has been showing for a very long time. And that's because the CDC and the FDA and the drug industry want to move away from current vaccines to mRNA model. And the only way they can do that is begin to show that there are flaws in the old vaccine designs. And Dr. Paul Offit has no mRNA product currently feeding his bank account. I'm sorry, that was really rude. I try not to do ad hominem attacks. So I apologize actually for that because I don't want to be- I think all you did was state a fact. You know, no, sorry, I'm sorry. You stated a fact. This is this is a fact. You're talking about a person whose position is so clearly biased. Anyone doing any other kind of science other than vaccine science would listen to what Paul Offit's saying, going, This man's crazy. Is that an ad hominem attack? No, because you don't do this in other sciences, except for tobacco science. 
And I'm not being funny. Literally, you don't do this. And the fact that he has a conflict of interest is a very, very good point. It is absolutely legitimate to ask and report about conflicts of interest because they bias people's perception. Yeah. And th- but but this is a, it's really a scary thought. While I'm glad that the truth about aluminum is being allowed to emerge and we'll see how far it gets. We're a little bit like jumping out of the frying pan where a lot of people are being burned into the fire where a whole lot of people are really going to be damaged if they move to these mRNA platforms that are not uh, significantly studied and a- yep. appear to be even I- far more toxic. I agree. And I had that same thought. A number of people came to me with that same idea that perhaps they just want to move the pediatric schedule, make room by, by you know, dissing on the aluminum contained vaccine, so to speak. Uh, but here's the analogy that I think when I think about this, right? They're not very smart, right? So if your house catches on fire and you've got insurance, the insurance company will, you know, recover for the, if it's an odd, it's, it's say a spark from electrics, it's an accident. But if you set your garage on fire intentionally because you want more insurance money, they're going to find that. And guess what's going to happen? You're not going to get any insurance money back. Okay. So this is the best analogy that I can think of. Their reputation is so in the crapper right now at the CDC, public health. It's a complete disaster. Um, I think part of their motivation may be we have to regain some legitimacy here. And in doing this, after years of misleading the public on aluminum safety, it, they're just shooting themselves in the foot again. So if they haven't seen the booster data yet, I'll be happy to send it to the CDC. No one's taking this bivalent vaccine. It's no one's buying their baloney anymore on mRNA. And you know, the word is out about the fact that the mRNA can, in fact, get into the genome in three different studies at least, okay? The mRNA from the vaccine can get into the genome in spite of their guess, their assumption that it wasn't going to do that. And so I really don't see mRNA vaccines as being something that's very popular. Talk about the straw that broke the camel's back. So uh, let's get back to see what this guy has to say about persistent asthma, which, by the way, is likely an autoimmune disease of the airway. You can look that up. That's a category of asthma that they will never talk about, autoimmune diseases of the airway. Uh Uh-oh, playback error. What happened? I may have to reload. Up this paper because then it'll call attention to it. But I feel like there are lessons that we learned early on. So, you know, you're on... Uh, vaccine and that was supposed to be some sort of proof uh, you know it's just it's it, it was that that study was no or that paper was no better than having eight children who ate peanut butter sandwiches that within a month of here i i suspect what might happen is there may be then actual real studies that are done looking at this that will, will refute it but you know as the the old jonathan swift line is falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after and that may be what happens here but i think at the very least we can try and reassure parents that this was a paper that should never be published because it offers nothing to our understanding of vaccines. He wants to censor. I'm actually concerned that it was funded in the first place. 
because you know one one another critique I'm hearing coming out is oh this is an observational study but observational studies can actually be really really useful if they're set up correctly as, as long as they find out. a negative result um, but and no problem know, at with what vaccines, point in the funding useful. process should someone say no you're not setting this up right like we're pulling our funding well at the very least uh, I, I, and, and we, we don't live in that world but been in, in, a, in a better world uh, this would never be published. I think any reasonable journal would look at this and say, you haven't proven a thing. You can't say anything about an association between, in this case, receipt of aluminum and vaccines and asthma because you have not done the appropriate controls. We reject this paper and it gets rejected and rejected and rejected. Sadly, there are a number of journals out there which aren't particularly good, which which where you where you can get a paper published. I think, frankly, you can publish anything these days, sadly. So there is. So he's he's doing science. It's time for backstop. He's doing science word salad here, where he's saying you don't have the appropriate controls. Yet there are no controls in an observational study. You can have a control group in an experiment where you don't apply, right? Something, and you can look at you know case control outcomes. The control is are the people that don't get the exposure, vaxxed, unvaxxed. Here he's talking about potential covariates, which he likes to presume are confounders. I'm sorry, I have to see where we're at in the chat now. Here I would present at double-stranded RNA meetings, and you'd present your data, and people would criticize your data, and you know, you'd think about it, you know, maybe did I do this the right way, had I not thought about something, all for the purpose of making better and better studies, more thoughtful studies, more informed studies, and that's good. That's science working at its best, which is that, that you, you know, you can call into question um, things, and, and, and that's, that's the way science works. That should be the way it works here. I mean, hopefully people that the people who publish this study, if it does get, I assume it's going to get published, that they that they listen to those criticisms and respond to those criticisms. And then the best response would be to do the right kind of studies, which they haven't done. And it's also interesting. Remember, if you look at people who um, who really do suffer aluminum toxicity, which is usually people who have, uh, who want to say, chronic uh, dialysis because their kidneys don't work or also taking in acids. I mean, asthma is not one of the consequences of that toxicity. Right. And asthma is something that really deserves some serious study. So, you know, in addition to increasing vaccine hesitancy and increasing vaccine refusal at a time when, you know, that possibility is perilous anyhow because of how politicized everything's gotten, we also then have sort of this not taking seriously the factors that could really be contributing to asthma, such as pollution, the air our children are breathing, uh, especially in, you know, their school buildings, which, you know, even after COVID still need better filtration. So that I want to address this because I teach environmental toxicology. I have an entire lecture on air pollution. Also, this is at ipac-edu.org. But also, when my sons, Ben and Zach, were young, when they were, you know, five and seven years old, I would walk to their school and there were six school buses with diesel school buses idling for half an hour right in front of the school. And I would have to walk through the plume of the diesel fumes myself. And so a group called Group Against Smog and Pollution, I approached them. They exist in Pittsburgh. And I said, hey, guys, why don't we pass a law that the school bus drivers have to just turn the key off and not idle the buses? These kids were exposed to two plumes of diesel exhaust a day for 100, 100 things, 158 days of, out of the year for the school year. Okay. The law was written. The, 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 the bill was written. It passed with flying colors. We had bipartisan support. 
So it's a misnomer that people that are aware of risks from vaccines are also not concerned about this. Every child that goes to school right now in Pennsylvania, the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is freed from exposure from diesel fumes because of this law. Further, um, I'm also concerned about interactions. Uh, if the kids are jack full of aluminum and they're walking in, in filthy air, what does that do? Uh, a side effect of that law, by the way, because there's snow days in Pennsylvania was that the fuel lines would freeze and so the kids would get more snow days. Um, so if you're a kid and you enjoy more snow days in Pennsylvania, you've got Uncle Jack to, to thank for that, okay? That was actually, that wasn't a question at all to you, but you know, that that's sort of how, how I see it. And I am really concerned though that that there will be this pushback against routine vaccines now that will be not just about, well, I don't like the COVID vaccine because my political ideology tells me not to, so I'm going to decide not to like any vaccines. But now this is sort of fuel to that fire as well, that see, it's going to make my kid have asthma. I don't. Okay, so the problem with that perspective is it's not as though there weren't parents in the 1990s and 2000 and 2010 well, coming up to COVID that were saying, could you make the vaccine safer? We were concerned about mercury. We're concerned about aluminum. It's not this, this, they act as though this study fell out of the blue. And now they're concerned that this one study is going to cause vaccine risk awareness. Well, I'll tell you what causes vaccine risk awareness. When your child gets vaccinated and then develops eczema thereafter, or asthma, or autism, or autoimmunity, or goes into seizures, that causes vaccine risk awareness. And then when you go to your doctor, and then you say, you know what, I hear a lot of controversial things about vaccines. I kind of wondering, could this be due to the vaccine? And they say, no, it's not due to the vaccine. That causes vaccine risk awareness because people then talk and they say, the same thing happened to me. And in all 50 states, it's happening. But you don't hear people that are not vaccinating their children saying out of the blue, my kids started having seizures. The rates are just not there. Out of the blue, all of a sudden, my kid developed a severe asthma. So the vaccine risk awareness is caused by vaccine risk denialism, plus the risk that's inherent to vaccines. That's the only reason why people are aware of the risk, because it's real. I think that's already happened. I think that that there was really never a politics to sort of uh, the anti-vaccine movement. I mean, the left, it was, um, you know, all things natural, don't put anything into my body that's unnatural, like, you know, additives or manufacturing residuals or preservatives or whatever. And on the right, it was, you know, government off my back, don't tell me what to do. I think now you're seeing much more um, of this anti-vaccine activity being embraced by the right. And what I worry about is that the pushback against COVID vaccine mandates is going to be a pushback against all vaccine mandates. And if that was true, if we, if I think if you ask anti-vaccine activists what you want, I think they would say, I don't want vaccines to be mandated. I want to make my own decisions and, and do that. And we'll be right back where we were in the 1960s and 70s when uh, measles reigned until we really got it under control by by essentially having school. school. Okay. This again is a gross misrepresentation of reality. Measles did not reign. Kids got measles sometimes. Not everyone got measles. And some of them were very mild cases. And some of them were more serious cases. 
but everybody that got measles then had lifetime immunity, so far as we know, and they didn't have to have multiple vaccines with whatever risk might be inherent to that. So, um, and by the way, even the CDC, if you go to Suzanne Humphrey's book, what's it called, guys? Dissolving Illusions. Yeah. Dissolving illusions, you'll see the diagrams and the charts directly from the CDC that shows that the bulk of the childhood illnesses declined well before the national vaccination program, including diseases for which there's no vaccine. And so it's called stolen valor. And I'm glad that I can finally put the two and two together here. When they say that the vaccines caused the, the uh, reduction in these childhood illnesses, it's called stolen valor. There are other explanations for it, like, um, well, we keep our kids home from school now. If right, if they've been exposed to someone, we keep them home from school. Uh, we have better sanitation, cleaner water, and all these other variables. That you know, he's making. Where is the randomized prospective clinical trial that shows that there's going to be a return? He's fear mongering, a, re a return to the Stone Ages, right? So anyway, Doctor Offit. Sorry. Yeah. And, you know, and that we've covered pre-COVID, we really covered this in depth. And it's really comes down to the terrain theory versus the germ theory approach to communicable infections. Um, and terrain theory, the science fully supports the germ theory um, is a trillion dollar industry. So there we go. And that really um, speaks to it looks like you froze there dr james no oh, no you're back okay um and the 1960s he's talking about they were in the united states of america where most people had good nutrition and access to clean water and flushable toilets and that whole sort of thing um there were 400 to 500 deaths i'd like to think in 1922 i mean to measles that we could save most of those individuals that you know they likely had severe underlying health issues that made them susceptible um you know and it's just like with covid 99.9 percent .9 recovery so why not have a whole approach where you just work on making sure the one to 0.01% of the population um, gets the proper treatment that they need to fully recover. And then I had this other thought a while, a year, a couple of years ago, I actually presented it to some board of health meeting or something that when you, when you really look at natural immunity and disease and the natural disease process, every individual on this planet is only at risk of infecting other people with these vaccine targeted infections for 12 hours, 18 hours of their lifetime, especially like for measles. Because as soon as you begin to, you're not contagious for the most part until you get that fever and you begin, the viral load gets high enough. And at which time, because if you, if your symptoms aren't being dampened down artificially, then your parent knows you're sick or you know you're sick and you isolate yourself. And then you emerge from that experience with either lifetime immunity or very long-term immunity compared to the vaccine target product. And so we're talking about, you know, putting fear in people of you're going to spread when you've only got these narrow windows of time when you can actually spread any given disease anyway. So yeah. back to uh, 
the nonsense here. <laughs> those are those are good points. So the nonsense, what they just said was he said that, you know, this reluctance about COVID-19 vaccine is political, right? He says it, it falls along party lines is what he's saying with conservatives being vaccine uh, hesitant or vaccine reluctant or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I just looked up, you know, um, a study for him uh, by Jennifer D. Allen. Uh, this is out of Tufts University, not a bad school, Tufts University. Uh, Coming School of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, they're looking at vaccine reluctance and they say, the title, this isn't preventative med uh, rep something. Why are some people reluctant to be vaccinated for COVID-19? A cross-sectional survey of USA adults in May to June, 2020. Now get this, you're not gonna believe this. Okay, in a multivariate analysis, controlling for, get this, gender, age, income, education, religious affiliation, health insurance coverage, and political party affiliation. Sorry, Dr. Offit, you're supposed to control for confounders, right? Once you adjust for political party affiliation, then you have isolated the vaccine risk skepticism and guess what they say the cause of vaccine risk skepticism is? That the people who are vaccine, sorry, vaccine skepticism is caused because people agree that vaccines are not safe and effective. They believe that everyone has a, they do not agree that everyone has a responsibility to be vaccinated. And they do not agree that public health authorities should be able to mandate vaccination. And that they should, they're more likely to believe that if everyone else were vaccinated, they would not need a vaccine. So that's just this study that says, hey, wait a minute, these people know more. And they have certain understanding of individual responsibility versus this concept for the greater good. This, this is when COVID-19 vaccines, uh, their negative efficacy had not yet been discovered, by the way. So negative efficacy, of course, means that if you have a COVID-19 vaccine, you're more likely to get an infection. So that might do that might have something to do with this, right? But now he's saying that it's politicized. It's only politicized at the highest levels. It's not politicized on the street. There are people I know will never get a COVID-19 vaccine that would fall into the camp of a pretty far left liberal. All right, here we go. Eliminate mandates and these diseases will come back. You just saw a case of polio in New York, and, and don't take that lightly. Uh, that, that When you see paralysis caused by this particular virus, which is a type 2 vaccine revertant virus that's circulating throughout the world now, that can only happen in an under-vaccinated population. And assume that he, because he was paralyzed by this virus, only about 1 in 2,000. Javier, you've got a point to make there? That's a pretty strong reaction. How can he make that statement? highly unvaccinated population does he know what the what the relative uh circulation of a vaccine is or uh, viruses how many people have been infected and survived i mean he's talking out of his mouth on that one <laughs> you're being kind well here's my thought on that uh first of all just like the measles outbreak that happened in disneyland that they pumped up into fear right there was a huge percentage of those cases. I think it was 34% of the, of the cases were vaccine type virus that came along with measles-like symptoms that were misdiagnosed by allopathic medical doctors who said this person has measles. They didn't, they had a rash due to the vaccination. So how, how is the polio vaccine doing by the way, now that it's been decades and decades and decades of evolution away from the original strain that was isolated for the vaccine? Is it failing now? It, you know. 
these people, were they vaccinated? No, he's going to say, no, we we don't have to do the polio vaccine because it's been quote unquote eradicated. The number one risk factor of polio in the world today is that you've gotten a polio vaccine. Those are the facts, ladies and gentlemen. Some people who are infected with this particular strain will be paralyzed by it. So assume there's another 2,000 people out there who are infected with this virus. And if you if you think that the New York wastewater is a problem, look at wastewater everywhere in this country, and you're going to find these, these kinds of strains. That's why you have to keep polio vaccine rates high, or else you'll see this disease come back. And, and that is not a disease you want to see come back. As a child of the 1950s, uh, having ex- seen, seen polio up close, uh, that is not a disease you want to see come back. Yeah, you were in the polio ward um, as a child, right. not with polio, but... Right, but I saw that. I mean, I saw kids in, in iron lungs, and I saw... The thing that I most remember, actually, was the so-called Sister Kenny treatments. I don't know if you remember this, but it was it was these hot packs that they would apply to various uh, limbs, muscles and limbs, and they, they were excruciatingly hot. And, and these... These are not the current ways of treating people with polio. So this is all non-sequitur. First, uh, second of all, if, if you go to my... Substack popular rationalism. Um, you'll see a discussion called Bad Science Theater that I just published. We just had this discussion this week, and we, we play the video of Dr. Offit speaking in a church. And in that church, uh, someone asked him to please answer the question Hey, do we could you tell us anything that you've seen, anything that you've witnessed in terms of corruption uh, with respect to monies, uh, around COVID-19 vaccination, uh, vaccine program, uh, or conflicts of interest. Paul Offit never answered the question. He started castigating the person for daring to ask the question when he himself had to go to a polio ward as a child. He was five years old and he saw polio and he knows polio. He never clarified to the people in the church that he never had polio. Second, there's something fishy about this, right? I wish I could say I came up with it, but Gracie actually said, why were they housing kids without polio in a polio ward? Paul Offit had a club foot disorder and had to have surgery. So why was he housed, co-housed with kids with polio? This is a very, very you know, interesting question. But um, we do a full analysis of all of his comments uh, in, from the church pew, too. He's he's busy, and I actually asked Bobby Kennedy, do you know if Paul Offit's contract states that he has to come out and promote vaccines just in October? Because he's on fire right now, and I'm getting really tired of having to, you know, counter all of this baloney. It's kind of interesting. So, you know, he's he's talking about polio the way that it was, and yes, I and I conclude in my discussion with the others, yes, he's psychologically scarred from that, so much so, and he's so in love with the, preventing the pain that he saw that happened to other children that he's completely unable to be unbiased about vaccine risk and injury. He's conflicted. And it's not the, it's not the financial confliction, conflicting that's the problem. It's the psychological conflicting. He can't imagine himself not working towards preventing, in his view, what could have happened if these kids had, had a vaccine. But, you know, my question is, why can he and others not consider another way to prevent severe disease? 
why only these man-made products that come with the risk of harm that skew the immune system, that all these other things happen? Why can't they even consider that there might be a better way now that we know so much more about the immune system, now that we know about the immune system's impact on neurological development, you know, now that we know that the lymphatic system, it has a direct tie to the brain. There is so much more that we know now about what makes real health and what can undermine health to just keep focusing on these old products. And then if you're going to go on to play, I mean, it's terrifying that this woman who had this horrific treatment for polio, traumatizing children, basically burning them, and he's traumatized by the screams. Well, why he should be anti hot packs on children, as opposed to uh, promoting um, vaccine only solutions to polio. Yeah, but you got to agree with me. This man who has so much influence, he's a voting member of ASIP. His is the director of the infectious disease or pediatric, whatever at, at CHOP. He has so much influence on mandates and his testimony. There was a hearing in 2000 that we talk about, about his conflicts of interest. So in this church, instead of answering the question, he goes on this rant about his childhood. That's where he's coming from. He is so conflicted. He should not be in charge of anything when it comes to infectious disease, because apparently as long as the antigen is present, you can put gasoline in a, in a vaccine. It's okay with Paul Offit because you know what? It's a vaccine and it's, that's what he's all about. It's, he has no ability. I'm saying, I think he's so biased. He literally has no ability to see risk because it's, it's, in, it's burned into his psyche that if there's only an effing vaccine, everything would be okay. Uh, and I, I'm, I've, I've analyzed it pretty deeply, uh, not just here, but elsewhere. He's very shallow in his use of logic and reason in this area. It's mostly emotional. But let's go on and we'll hear him out. His children would scream out. And, you know, this was maybe 20 kids in a ward. Kids were in iron lungs. Kids were screaming because of the hot packs. It was one visiting hour a week. I mean, it's not like there were therapy dogs and iPads and your child and your parents lying next to you. I mean, there was only one visiting hour a week and it was just... It was hell. Uh, literally, it wasn't like hellish. It was hell. I think I was in hell for six weeks when I was five years old. Oh, gosh. I just, that's, I mean, that's so much. And the amazing thing is that you were able to turn that into your own passion for pediatric. Where's his passion for antivirals? The vaccines make so much money, right? CDC has $27.5 million donated from pharmaceutical companies every year and an apparently unlimited budget in the terms of billions of dollars from taxpayer money. Where's the antivirals for polio that we're going to need because the vaccine's failing? If he was really concerned about it, he would be out here doing podcasting. You know, we tried, there's the vaccination era and these viruses evolved and outsmarted the vaccines. And now we have this other class of vaccines. Um, so there are tons of doctors out there calling for antivirals against polio for the same concern that they have. They are no less or more heroic than Paul Offit in his concern over children. Um, but, uh, you know, there's one called Pocapavir, V073, right? There's an antiviral that uh, has been demonstrated uh, to inhibit poliovirus. And um, we have uh, an, antivi an antiviral that, that just might be a contender. Where's the agenda? to make those widely available in New York right now. If there's 2,000 cases of polio, that's 2,000 cases, you know, where, where are the antivirals? He doesn't mention them. They may be already in play for all I know. 
And, and Jack, there, there are some studies going way back looking at the mechanisms of action of ivermectin and with RNA and DNA viruses. And so there is good reason to hope and believe that ivermectin could also be a very powerful, effective or, uh, antiviral uh, to prevent and or treat polio and others. I'm not saying it is for sure, right. but the um, the early studies are encouraging that it may. And here's the other interesting thing. Dr. Offit is 71 years old. So at the time that the polio vaccine program was being experimented on from 1950 till 1957, that's exactly when he would have been that age. So how many of these kids that he saw in a polio ward were actually vaccine-induced poliomyelitis? That's a good question. Okay. And, you know, which really leads to concern about having been through that and then the thimerosal ex experience um, and having battled, you know, the Wakefield acolytes all these years and then going through COVID, then to come to this point where it's, you know, are we going to have people who want us to remove aluminum from vaccines? What would be the consequences of us saying, okay, no more aluminum adjuvants in vaccines? That's not possible. You would be eliminating certain vaccines. Yeah. You, would, you would have to go back to ground zero. I mean, when you well, basically when you try to eliminate thimerosal from vaccines, what you did was you shifted basically multi-dose files to single-dose files. So you made vaccines much more expensive with no gain in terms of safety um, and made it more difficult than for, for vaccines in the developing world. That's what you did there. You can't go back and try and find either different adjuvants or, because now you're talking about a new product. And that's, you know, costs often a billion dollars to make a new product. And companies aren't going to do that. I mean, company, first of all, vaccines are not big money makers for these companies. They're often less than 10% of what they do. I mean, we went from 27 vaccines. I, I want to jump in there real quick and just say that while they eliminated mercury, which was very toxic, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole on this episode, um, from richer nations, developing nations to this day, get thimerosal in some of their vaccines. They did not take it away from the poor kids who are still experiencing the damage from mercury. And now we're going to get into um, him claiming that vaccines are not profitable when Gardasil and Merck's MMR are at the very top of their most profitable sales products. It's insane that the they're still trying to claim that these products are not at the top of, of these consolidated uh, vaccine companies now. Like I said, it's not an ad hominem to say that uh, he's lying. It's just a fact. He's lying. That, that's a falsehood that he's stating. It's not my fault that he's stating and it. it's not my fault that we can recognize that. But if there's any heat for that, uh, you know, so be it. Come get me. I'd love to battle this out in court with Dr. Paul Offit if he thinks that I'm accusing him or taking on his uh, reputation yeah. here. Listen, and what you just talked about, this export of thimerosal containing vaccines is a form of medical hegemony. The least, the last population on this planet that you want to put thimerosal into are people that have poor nutrition. And yet these are the developing nations, these emerging nations or nations, low and middle income countries. And yet we are, well, not we, but our, our multinational and our U.S. corporations export thimerosal containing vaccines that we're not even willing to give to our own children. That's crazy. Why would anyone follow CDC's 
advice on any thimerosal or now aluminum containing vaccines. Yeah, and, and Jack, I just, I just wanna add that I, I try to stay away from ad hominem attacks, not so much I fear anybody, you know, filing a lawsuit against me. It's I'm trying to keep my humanity in this craziness. And I'm trying to not get ugly, even if the other side gets ugly. I'm trying to keep, you know, my mind and heart and everything open to people learning and changing. I don't want anybody to die from a vaccine targeted infection. I don't want anybody to die from a vaccine product or genetic therapy. I just want real healing, real science and okay. scientific okay. integrity. Yeah, I get that. Remember Tony Bark, our beloved late Tony Bark. She had a great line, which was, if, there, if, if the manufacturer of the brakes on my car creates a faulty product, it doesn't make me anti-car. I'm pro-safe brakes. And if a CEO that's in charge of reassuring the public that the brake product that they put out is actually safe is lying, it is not an ad hominem attack, and it's not ugly, it's a moral responsibility to call them out on their lies. And I'm not saying that I hate Paul Offit. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, you know, there's no ugliness here. There's truth and reality, and there's falsehood. And the the claims that he's making are radically dangerous, radically dangerous, because as they pack the um, vaccine schedule with more and more vaccines, and you know that there's one, over 170 vaccines in the pipeline, how in the world are they going to do it without additional aluminum-containing vaccines? Remember that this very study did a dose-dependent association, which is incredibly important. For every 1,000 micrograms of aluminum, there was a 26% or 27% increase in persistent asthma if you had eczema. And I did the math, and you're looking at, by the age of 12, something like three times that amount. And so, so many people have chronic illness. Over 57% of kids have chronic illness in the United States, and yet we're supposed to have the, the best healthcare in the, in the country. And I totally appreciate the beauty of you wanting to not be the one that calls them out. But would no, you call I'm, out? I'm all for calling them out. I just yeah. wanted to explain why I try to, I'm careful yeah. with my language. I believe to call a lie a lie, but. Right. Okay. I just want to I am being that. very careful with my language, and I believe that I'm using the right term to say Paul Offit is a liar on this. <laughs> and he's lying through his teeth, and there's nothing that can be uh, on many, many, many of these points. Yes, they adjusted for covariates. It's right there. It's the most important criticism of this of this study. He's trying to bury the study. He's trying to cajole them into retracting their own study. And, and if they do that, the other thing that could be happening here is, oh, look, yes, we are the erudite scholars at CDC and Paul Offit was right. We're going to retract our paper. Look at us. We're so magnanimous. We retracted our own paper. That's what IPAC should have done with their paper. That's the other game that they could be playing with this for all I know. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not the center of the universe. It's kind of, you know, I don't want to put myself there out there as the most important thing in the world, but there's too much at stake here with the with the amount of money. He's well, no, Let's get to the point. What did he say? He said, It'll never happen. You'll never get aluminum out of vaccines. So ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something that you can verify with your doctor. I'm not giving you medical advice, but Dr. Um, Paul Thomas taught me that for some of the vaccines that you may be considering for your children, there are vaccines that are aluminum free. There are alternatives that are aluminum free. So at the very least, 
if you go to your doctor, ask them if they can provide aluminum-free alternatives. Create the demand that Paul Offit says can't be met. Or, yeah, Paul Offit. And so at the very least, if you're still bent on a, a vaccinating your children and you're within the sound of my voice, do yourself a favor and just go, go to bed at night and sleep a little bit better, knowing that you've done everything that you can do to reduce the amount of aluminum. Read Dr. Paul Thomas's book, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, and go look at my study with Dr. Paul Thomas and look at the new study that we just put out with a vax versus unvaxed reassessment with Dr. Russell Blaylock. And then go look at the three studies that we looked at the accumulation of aluminum um, there's a massive literature out there. Dr. Chris Exley has found that uh, um, there's too much aluminum in uh, baby formula still, in spite of the regulations in the UK. He found that there's aluminum in the brains of people with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and kids with autism at rates that are higher than a, that found in a person that experienced an aluminum foundry accident. Okay. And... and I'm jumping in now that interview. Oh, there we go. I'm blinking on my own screen here. Um, we went long on that interview, but it is recorded and uploaded. So go to informchoicewa.org and the Inform Life Radio tab. You will find in two parts that full interview uh, with Dr. James Lines-Weiler of IPAC dash edu.org and ipacknowledge.org. Please go check it out. Check out his great work. Um, and I, I just want to thank you all for tuning in and I hope you all have a great informed weekend. Take care. If you're looking for a publication that delivers honest takes and critical insights into the issues of our day, then look no further than The Flame Paper. The Flame Paper is written for the people, by the people, who aren't afraid to challenge a mainstream narrative, be it health care, voter fraud, political correctness, or even the one world government. The Flame is full of timely articles, reports, and expert advice written by freedom-loving, truth-telling experts, journalists, and concerned citizens. To subscribe, go to theflameusa.com. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy, but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. 
My name is Del Beatry, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com.